Well, welcome to episode 59 of Spurbs Herbs. Today we are going to be talking about Gu Sui Bu, Drynaria rhizoma, also known commonly as just Drynaria rhizome. So Drynaria Drynaria rhizoma is the Latin and Drynaria rhizoma is the common. So we are going to talk about what this herb is and all kinds of stuff. So hang in there and let's get going. So today we are going to be looking at another single Chinese herb that is Drynaria is a single Chinese herb. Agusui Bu, Drynaria rhizome, a yang tonifying herb. So we're going to talk about what a yang tonifying herb actually is as we as we are doing this. And as usual, we will explore all the intricacies of this herb as well as an explanation of its category. And of course, we'll have to discuss yang and its significance to Chinese medicine. And as usual, we will be exploring something a little different. Today, we will discuss epigenetics and how it may help explain some of the mysteries of Chinese medicine. So this is getting into some nice hardcore uh, science here. I'm, I'm excited about talking about epigenetics. My, my undergraduate was, was molecular biology, so very much in the, we didn't have the term epigenetics when I was going through uh, molecular biology, but it's right in that ballpark. We learned all about it. We just didn't call it epigenetics. And so we're going to talk about all that. Please join us and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on even one exciting episode. So before we get going into today's episode, I just wanted to talk to you guys. I am starting a new webinar series and wanted to let my podcast listeners know about it before anyone else knows about it. It is Integrative Nutrition in Chinese Medicine and will cover biomedical and Chinese concepts of nutrition and explore the complementary and alternative concepts that are part of the modern supplement industry. This series will be one live class per month covering a category of nutrition and will include some basic biochemistry, nutrition, and supplements available on the market. In other words, it's going to be the perfect combination of biochemical nutrition, supplements, Chinese medicine, and real-world use cases. If you are a practitioner of any stripe or just interested in nutrition, this is the series for you. And you can sign up for the first class or the whole series at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's integrativemedicinecouncil.org. I will only be teaching each class live one time. After that, it will only be available as a recording. So don't miss this opportunity to learn about a topic all our patients ask about and get a firm understanding of the basics of integrative nutrition. All right. With that... Let's start our something different today about epigenetics. So let's talk about what epigenetics are. So genetics, not epigenetics, genetics are the study of DNA deoxyribonucleic acid and how it forms genes, the portion of DNA that code for proteins in the body, and how the whole thing reproduces and gets passed on from generation to generation. Uncoiled and laid end-to-end, -end, the DNA from just one of our billions of cells would be 67 billion miles long. That is astronomical. And that's not just once in our body. That's in our body billions of times for each of our cells. Unbelievable. This uncoiling that we're talking about is important 
Coiled DNA can't be replicated or transcribed. Transcribed means copied into mRNA or messenger RNA, the first step of making a new protein. RNA, if you're not familiar, is ribonucleic acid, a less stable form of DNA. So we have DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. RNA is just ribonucleic acid. It doesn't have that deoxy. The, the deoxy um, actually makes it a little bit more stable, and so that's much more useful for our genes than anything else, you know, to maintain that through generations. Uh, DNA is a little unstable. We're not going to get into that today, but RNA is much more unstable not suitable for long-term genes, though we do have RNA viruses. All right, enough on RNA versus DNA. Let's get into epigenetics. Is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. Gene expression refers to how often or when proteins are created from the instructions within your genes. While genetic changes can alter which protein is made, epigenetic changes affect gene expression to turn genes on and off. Since your environment and behavior such as diet and exercise can result in epigenetic changes, it is easy to see the connection between your genes and your behaviors and environment. See, this is the piece that was missing. You know, um, if you look back in the history of genetics, we have Gregor Mendel, Mendel, who was a, a monk who was, was very famous for looking at pea plants and determining how the basics of genetics actually um, uh, came about. In fact, they call it Mendelian genetics. That's, there are non-Mendelian genetics. It's an advanced topic. We're not going to get into that. Um, so we have these genes. We, we see that if you cross, you know, two... Uh, uh, recessive uh, individuals, you're always going to have the same, what we call phenotype, look to that person. So in other words, if um, two people with, brown, uh, with blue eyes uh, uh, have a baby, their baby's going to have blue eyes. Uh, eye color might be a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the basics of this. And yet, if you have a dominant, you have uh, two brown eyes, but they might have recessive blue genes in, the, in there as well, what you'll find is that three of their babies out of four will have brown eyes and one will have blue eyes when the two recessive genes come together. Just to refresh, of course, for those of you who've had a little bit of genetics. But what's interesting is that doesn't take into account behaviors and environment. And so when it comes to eye color, that probably doesn't have a huge role. But when it comes to, you know, our uh, ways our proteins are expressed, you know, things along those lines, you know, it plays a big role. It can play a big role. And just in the last you know, 30, 40 years, I mean, I went to undergraduate school 30 years ago. We were talking about these concepts. It wasn't as codified as the term epigenetics, not that I'm aware of at that point. Uh, so, I mean, this is relatively new. And what we're finding is, yeah, we have these genes that code for all these proteins in our body, but they can change. They, you know, we, can, we can actually express some of those genes more often or less often then another person can, and our behaviors and our environment can play a role in that, and that's the concept of epigenetics. So one, uh, these epigenetic changes can happen in lots of ways, including DNA methylation. So DNA methylation works by adding a chemical group to DNA. Uh, so methylation is the add-on of a methyl group is basically what it means from a chemistry point of view, and a methyl group is CH3. 
Uh, so one atom of carbon and three atoms of hydrogen. Typically, this group is added to, a s to specific places on the DNA where it blocks the proteins that attach to DNA to read the gene. The chemical group can be removed through a process called demethylation. demethylation. Typically, methylation turns genes off and demethylation turns genes on. So right there, we have basic machinery in our, in our nucleus that allows us to do this with our genes. And then those things that do, that methylate and demethylate, can be influenced by the environment and our behaviors. So that's one way that epigenetics can occur. Another one is called histone modification. So DNA wraps around proteins called histones. In fact, remember when I said DNA is coiled? They're coiled around histones. That's what they're coiled around. And basically what histones allow us to do is make that sick, those multi-billions. How many billions did I say? Let me, let me read. 67 billion miles of DNA, and we can coil it around the, uh, the histone so that it, it takes up only a very small portion of a, of a, of a cell. So histone is very important. Um, when histones are tightly packed together, Proteins that read the gene cannot access the DNA as easily, so the gene is turned off. When histones are loosely packed, more DNA is exposed or not wrapped around a histone and can be accessed by proteins that read the gene, so the gene is turned on. Chemical, chemical groups can be added or removed from histones to make the histones more tightly or loosely packed, again, turning genes off or on. So this is another epigenetic factor. And what plays a role in these, in these, how these histones are, are uh, these chemical groups are added or removed from the histones is epigenetics is part of our behavior and our environment. Finally, today we're just we're going to mention uh, non-coding RNA, and your DNA is used as instructions for making coding and non-coding RNA. And what that coding RNA is made is used to make proteins. Non-coding coding RNA helps control gene expression by attaching to coding RNA along with certain proteins to break down the coding RNA so that it cannot be used to make proteins. Non-coding RNA may also recruit proteins to modify histones to turn genes on and off. So this non-coding RNA is really kind of fascinating and there's a lot of research, or at least there was back when I was first studying this, on non-coding RNA. And also we have, just so you know, we have a non-coding DNA too, and we're still trying to figure that all out. We think that may play a role in epigenetics as well, but we're not going to get into that too much here. So why are we talking about epigenetics? Because this is a show about herbs. Well, besides it being a little something different, which I try to do every episode, which I do do every episode, and utterly fascinating, at least for an old molecular biology undergraduate such as myself, there was an interesting new article, and the article was called The Role of Epigenetics in Traditional Chinese Medicine, published on the website www.whatisepigenetics.com. It discusses how the field of epigenetics may have a role in explaining how herbs and even acupuncture work their magic. So let's look at a couple examples. Now, one thing I want to say is this article was fascinating. I loved it. It was amazing, and there is research showing that these things are happening, but it's basic research. Most of it's in animals. It's preliminary. So who knows where this is going to go? I think it's fascinating. And I think if you look at uh, uh, one of the courses that I do, which is um, called Why Not How Do Herbs Work? 
it gets into a lot of really interesting co-evolutionary kind of concepts. And I think epigenetics is a great way to combine that co-evolutionary sort of aspects of herbs. Like, why do herbs even work on us? Why should they work on us? That's what that course says. It doesn't talk about how they work. It talks about why they work. And I think epigenetics plays a huge role in that. So, all right, let's go back over those few concepts that we talked about. So DNA methylation again. So as mentioned, DNA methylation will usually turn genes off. There have been several herbal compounds that have been shown to decrease enzymes involved with DNA methylation. These include curcumin from Jian Huang, um, also known as curcumin longae rhizoma, or turmeric. This is turmeric, very popular herb right now. Uh, there's another another chemical, epigallocatechin gallate, or EGCG, which is from green tea, or in Chinese, lu cha. So these are both Chinese herbs, as well as Ayurvedic in nature. You know, the, the turmeric is definitely Ayurvedic as well. Additionally, many herbs used to treat cancer can increase DNA methylation and cause cancer cell death. These include Astragalus membranesis, or Huangqi, Agustrum lucidum, Nuzhenzi, Panax ginseng, or Renchen, as ginseng, Romania glutinosa. It wasn't, in this article, it wasn't super exact, so I'm not sure if it's shu or prepared, or sheng or fresh, Dihuang, um, Romania. Scutellaria bicalensis, which is Huangqin, Trichosanthes kirilawi, which is Gualo, and Zingibera officinale, which is ginger, but I'm not sure, again, if it's fresh or dry ginger, so it's sheng or ganjiang in these cases. So all this, all these herbs that we're talking about have been shown at least a, at some level to affect DNA methylation. So that's that's really interesting concept. Interestingly, acupuncture may also influence DNA methylation. Research published in the journal Pain examined, which is a good journal, examined the effects of acupuncture in addressing chronic pain and its emotional and cognitive implications in mice. It was a mice study, uh, or a mouse study, I should say. Over a six-month duration, acupuncture effectively mitigated pain, sensitivity, emotional disruptions, and cognitive deficits, leading to the restoration of DNA methylation levels. Notably, acupuncture reversed DNA methylation alterations in genes linked to pain, mitochondrial function, and neural processes, highlighting its potential positive impact through TCM-based epigenetic modifications and intricate molecular pathways. So that's a really interesting concept that actually putting a needle in can affect our DNA and how our DNA is expressed. That's amazing. Um, what I want to know is what points, was it all the points they used? Were there some specific points? I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done here, but it's a fascinating pointer to how acupuncture uh, is affected, you know, can affect epigenetics. We also, uh, as we mentioned, talked about histone modification, and some TCMs can inhibit histone deacetylases, or HDACs, which are enzymes that remove acetyl groups from histones. Acetylation of histones loosens the DNA around the histones, which makes it easier for the DNA to be be transcribed. Evidence has shown that herbs that modulate histones can have therapeutic effects in the treatment of arthritis, cancer, cardiovascular, and cerebrovascular diseases, as well as some skin diseases. In one study investigating the pharmacological effects of the Chinese herb salvia, Mitz salvia mitzuritzerae, which is Donshen, 
on breast cancer cells, researchers found that certain compounds in the herb called tanshinones could stop the growth of breast cancer. A specific type of tanshinone known as T1, quote, reduced the levels of histone acetylation, which in turn inhibited the growth of breast cancer cells. So that's fascinating. Again, very interesting how epigenetics and herbs can affect each other. They also talk about RNA methylation. So we talked about DNA methylation. Here in this article, they talked about RNA methylation as well, which is a modification of RNA molecules that plays a crucial role in gene expression and various cellular processes. It has been implicated in several diseases, including cancer, neurodegenerative disorders, and metabolic disorders. Several Chinese formulas, including Huatuo Zaizao Wan, studied to treat atherosclerosis, and Lingue Juwangan, studied as a treatment for hepatic steatosis or fatty liver, may influence RNA methylation. Again, very preliminary, but very interesting. So there you go. Epigenetics is a very interesting trail of research. I've been saying that a lot. Very interesting, haven't I? So, all right, I'm continuing. <laughs> That's just the way my mind works. Uh, so epigenetics is a very interesting trail of research into how DNA and gene expression works, allowing for major environmental and behavioral influences. It makes sense that acupuncture nerves can affect many mechanisms of epigenetics. While this research is just beginning and is very early, they do point to some very interesting approaches to understanding and further utilizing these interventions. And with this introduction of epigenetics in Chinese medicine, let's discuss today's herb. Today's herb is Gu Sui Bu, or Drinaria rhizome. It's in the family of Polypodiaceae, and the species specifically is Drinaria fortunae, um, with Kunze in, um, in uh, parentheses and J.SM. Now, remember those parentheses and the J. Dot refer to the biologists that first classified this herb. So the, the species is actually Drinaria fortunae. And the medicinal part is the rhizome, which are the lateral roots. That, so you have the main root, and these are rootlets or lateral roots coming off of that main root. I love the English translation of Gusui Bu. Mender of Shattered Bones. Very interesting. Other names are Ba Yang Jiang, or, which is from Sichuan, Hu Sun Jiang, Mao Jiang, Haiyan Jiang, Shu Wu Gong, which is from Yunnan province, Shen Jiang. This is not, so if that sounds familiar, this is Shen Jiang, as opposed to when we have fresh ginger, it's Sheng Jiang. It has a G on the end there, so it's slightly different. But Jiang doesn't mean ginger, so you see there's a lot of gingers in here. Uh, Xiyang Jiang is another uh, term. Ho Jiang, Kun Jiang. And in Japanese, it's Katsu Saiho. And in Korean, Koswa Eibo. Koswa Ebo. Again, I don't speak Korean or Japanese. I try to speak Chinese, not very well, but I try. Okay, so regarding its name, this is interesting. So we did a lot of those genomics. Here we're going to explain a little bit. So regarding its name, the Materia Medica of Ruhuazi, which was written in 713 CE, quotes Chen Song Chi as saying, the original name of Gusu Bu was monkey ginger or Ho Jiang. 
The Kaiyuan Emperor used it to govern fractur fractures and injuries, tonifying the bones that were shattered, hence the name Mender of Shattered Bones. Chen goes on, goes on to say that the original name of the monkey ginger was derived from its shape and because the monkey belongs to the earthly stem Shen. It is called Shen Ginger or Shen Jiang. So there's that Shen Jiang that we mentioned earlier. It's also called Hairy Ginger or Mao Jiang. That's a lot of those other terms that we just talked about. So we said it's part of the um, Polypodaceae family, and the poly, poly, Polypodaceae family is a family of ferns that includes about 65 genera and 1,650 species. So that's, that's a pretty good size uh, family. Uh, and uh, the, the takeaway here is it's a fern. That's where this comes from. Almost all species of this family are epiphytes, which are a plant or plant-like organism that grows on the surface of another plant and derives its moisture and nutrients from the air, rain, water, and marine environments or from debris accumulating around it. So it's not a parasite. It's not a parasitic plant, but it does grow on another, uh, on, on another plant. Most species are found in wet climates, most commonly in rainforests, which you know we think of ferns, ferns being mostly there. And the genus Drynaria belongs to the subfamily of Drynaria. There we go, Drynaria. That's the subfamily that Drynaria today's herb falls into the genus. All right, so back to Guswi Bu. Uh, Bensky says, uh, remember Bensky and his team are is one of the major texts that we use. We use three major texts generally. That's one of them. So the dosage of this herb is 9 to 21 grams. Chen Chen, another one of our, our common, uh, our three texts, say the dose is 10 to 20 grams in decoction, so very similar. And our third usual text is actually a little bit different. Brandon Wiseman say 10 to 15 grams, so a little bit narrower of a, a dosage range than Bensky and Chen Chen. Uh, the category Bensky and his team puts this herb in the herbs that tonify the yang subcategory under tonifying herbs. Chen and Chen say it is in the yang tonifying herb subcategory of tonic herbs. And Brenna Wiseman say it is a yang supplementing medicinal under the supplementing medicinals category. So they're all very similar. They just have slightly different... Uh, takes on the translation. Um, as, you know, Brandon Wiseman, Yang Supplementing Medicinal, it, it sounds kind of hoity-toity, but I think it's also the most exact of these as well because there's a lot of, lot of quote-unquote herbs that are not herbs. They're minerals and things like that. So technically they're medicinals rather than herbs. Um, so they tend to be a little bit, um, but generally we say herbs. Bensky and his team says, say it is bitter and warm and enters the kidney and liver channels. And both of the other texts, Chen Chen and Brown Wiseman, agree with this, which is unusual. They usually do not agree. So the fact that they all say bitter and warm and enters the kidney and liver channels. Uh, both Bensky and his team and Chen Chen say the original source for this herb is the Materia Medica, Medica of Medicinal Properties, the Yao Xing Ben Sao written by Jin Chuan during the Tang Dynasty, uh, circa 600 CE. So it's not the oldest. Remember, oldest usually come from the Shendong, Shendong Ben Sao Jing, around 200 
um, CE. So this is a few hundred, you know, 400 years after that, but it's still, it's almost 1500 years old, at least the first writing of it. It's probably, it was usually these words were used uh, for hundreds of years before they're written about. So that's this herb. So let's talk about tonifying herbs in general, and then let's talk about uh, young tonifying in particular. So according to Bensky, the Bensky has these great opening commentaries in each of these sections. So that's why I, I quote him a lot in this. Um, Bensky and his team says, tonifying herbs, also called tonics, are those which strengthen or supplement an area or physiological process of the body that is weakened or insufficient. They also strengthen the body's defenses against disease. Clinically, they are used in combination with herbs that expel external pathogenic influences for disorders in which the pathogenic influence is strong and the normal chi is weak, a strategy called supporting the normal and expelling the pathogenic, or fujong chu she. These herbs assist in the recovery of those who have been ill with chronic or degenerative disorders by strengthening the various physiological processes of the body and supplementing substances which are depleted. Tonics are used in treating patterns of deficiency of the qi, blood, yin, and yang. It is important to remember that in the clinic, depending on the patient's presentation, the herbs are often combined. For example, a patient with yang deficiency usually suffers from qi deficiency as well, and the same process may also involve yin deficiency. Moreover, patterns of qi deficiency may evolve into yang deficiency. The practitioner must therefore be flexible when using these herbs. A few words of caution should be made with regard to tonics. It is important to remember that herbs are only one part of the healing process. There is a tendency to suggest to debilitated patients that taking a tonic is all that is needed for recovery. That is not true. Physical and breathing exercises and diet are also important and of course sufficient rest. What is more, Tonifying herbs strengthen the processes of the body, including pathogenic processes, such as those associated with external pathogenic influences. Thus, unless they are combined with herbs that release the exterior, tonifying herbs should not be prescribed in cases where there are still signs of an exterior disorder. If they are, the exterior disorder will linger on. So this is important. This, this last little bit is really important because one of the things that I, I and I, I believe this is an early, early transmission mistake in Chinese medicine in the U.S. And, and in Western countries is that we have this rule that we, we've been drilled in in our schooling, which says never tonify during an external pathogen. You tonify the external pathogen, not the individual. And that's not true. Um, I, I've never seen that from any of the Chinese literature. Um, I hear everybody, I have never not, whenever I ask this question, everyone says, oh yeah, I heard that, I heard that. Everybody says they've heard that, but it's not written down anywhere. And I think what happened was, you know, most of the education in the Western world kind of happened, there was about, a, a, I think, uh, one Chinese doctor in the 60s that had like 10 students and I think almost all of those students went off and founded schools and there was no textbooks or anything. I think there was someone wrote down a note wrong and it just got translated and transferred into everybody. This is right here is super important. This is one of my, my soapbox moments. So I, I like talking about it. this is the moment right here. It doesn't say you can't use tonifying in an external 
attack. What it says is if there's an external attack, you also have to include exterior releasing herbs. That's the important concept is it's not that you can't use tonics in an external attack. In fact, you almost have to in a lot of cases, especially if their chi is not strong enough to expel that external pathogen. You need to use tonics in an external attack, but you have to do it with external with herbs that release the exterior. So that is, I, I just want to emphasize that because I hear this constantly and I think it's a major transmission mistake that we've done. All right, moving on back to uh, Bensky and his commentary, his team and his commentary. And it says, um, there is a, oop, what did I do? Okay, there we go. Uh, the practitioner should also be aware of a condition referred to as deficient yet unable to accept tonification, or shu or bu shou bu. This refers to an individual who regularly develops problems after taking tonics. The most common are digestive problems such as nausea, bloating, or loss of appetite. Signs of fire from deficiency, including dry mouth and lips, irritability, and insomnia can also appear. These problems are usually due to underlying stagnation, which must be dealt with before tonification can be successful. In addition, if a tonic is given to a patient who is not primarily deficient, a wide range of problems can occur, including indigestion, rashes, and irritability. So that was tonifying herbs. Let's specifically talk briefly about herbs that tonify the yang. The herbs in this section are used for patterns of yang deficiency, primarily of the kidneys, spleen, and heart, which underlies the qi transforming functions of the body. They're also known as herbs that assist the yang or zhu yang. Because the kidneys are the seat of the primal yang, the basis of all the body's yang, the most important use of this class of herbs is to tonify the kidney yang. The principal manifestation of kidney yang deficiency is systemic exhaustion and lack of warmth. The most common associated symptoms are withdrawal into oneself, fear of cold, cold extremities, sore and weak lower back and lower extremities, pale tongue, and a deep and weak pulse. Other related problems include impotence, spermatorrhea, which is, um, you know, I've heard lots of talk about spermatorrhea, which is technically means leakage of sperm, and it's not something that the West recognizes in any way, shape, or form. I've heard some people say this is um, similar to nocturnal emissions or, or a wet dream, um, but you know, those will come up specifically in, in other, they'll say spermatorrhea and uh, nocturnal emissions. So I, I'm not sure what the spermatorrhea is. It's not a common thing in the West. Um, watery vaginal discharge, is a, uh, these are all related problems, remember. So watery vaginal discharge, infertility, enuresis, um, which is um, uh, 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 leakage of urine. Uh, polyuria are going too frequently, wheezing, and daybreak diarrhea. Day, daybreak diarrhea is really interesting. It's like when you first wake up in the morning, you have diarrhea. So as soon as the day breaks, you have diarrhea. And that's a, in Chinese medicine, that is a is pathognomic, which means when you see daybreak, di daybreak diarrhea, you know that there's a yang deficiency going on. All right, so that's the commentary from, from Bensky on all of this. 
let's talk about what good quality looks like. So according to Bensky, uh, good quality consists of large brown rhizomes with few hairs. And Zhao and Chen, so remember Zhao and Chen, they wrote the book Chinese Medicinal Identification and Illustrated Approach. So they're, they're really about what is the best quality. And they say superior medicinal material is thick, large, and brown, but not necessarily very specific. It presents with long, flat strips, slightly curved with branches. The surface is densely covered by deep brown to dark brown small scales and soft, like downy hairs. The texture is light, brittle, and easily broken. There is no odor, and it tastes bland and slightly astringent. So that's that puckering sort of taste. What are its actions? So according to Bensky, Gusui Bu tonifies the kidneys and strengthens bones for such symptoms as weak low back and knees, diarrhea, tinnitus, diminished hearing, and loose painful teeth and bleeding gums associated with kidney deficiency. It promotes mending of the sinews and bones for traumatic injuries such as falls, fractures, contusions, and sprains. And it stimulates the growth of hair and is used topically as a tincture for alopecia or, or um, going bald, you know, the condition of going bald. Chen Chen similarly say its functions include tonifies the kidney and strengthens the bones, tonifies the kidney and benefits the ears. So that's a little different. But the ears are the flower of the kidney, so they're connected with the kidney, so it makes sense. And promotes mending of bones and relieves pain. Brandon Wiseman say it has several functions. Supplements kidney yang and strengthens sinew and bone. Quickens the blood and joins sinew and bone. It may also be used external, externally to treat vitiligo. So vitiligo, if you're familiar, that's that um, there's patches of melanin or, or pigmentation that's lost on the skin. Uh, so that's an interesting use of this as well. And Zhao and Chen, that's the identification. They have some basic uh, actions, medical actions as well. And they say it supplements the kidney, strengthens the bones, heals injuries, and relieves pain. So you can see that at its basics, they're all very similar. And then there's a couple little, you know, alopecia, vitiligo, slightly slight differences between these different medical actions from the different books. So how is this prepared? According to Bensky et al. in Sichuan province, fire is used to burn off the hair-like outer fibers. In Guangdong province, the rhizome is steamed, cut into thin slices, then dried in the sun. And this is known as drynaria slices or gu sui bu pian. In its raw form, the material is tough and fibrous and difficult to decoct or break into pieces. So it is usually steamed or fried first. Sand fried drynaria or sha chow gu sui bu. Uh, sand is heated in a wok at a high temperature until it moves like liquid. And pieces of the herb are added and the sand is constantly stirred until the pieces swell. The sand is then sifted out and any remaining exterior fibers are knocked off. This method of preparation makes the pieces friable, cleans them of fibers, and facilitates the decoction process. Chen Chen say gu sui, sui bu must be cleaned thoroughly and dry fried to facilitate extraction of active components. To relieve pain, fresh gu sui bu is mixed with alcohol and applied topically. 
So Western uses of this, one article discusses the use of this herb in gum disease, rheumatoid bone loss, diabetes, and osteoporosis. Interesting. Another article discusses it, it its uses as an anti-inflammatory and anti-rheumatoid. Again, uh, rheumatoid referring to rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, makes sense there. And Dharmananda, if you're not familiar with Sabuti Dharmananda, uh, he is just such a prolific writer and incredibly, incredibly expert on Chinese herbs. Uh, Dharmananda also mentions his benefit in both senile and Alzheimer dementia. So that's an interesting use of this herb as well. And it makes sense. Generally, as we grow older, we tend to um, get uh, our, we get vacuous in our yin and yang. And so that can play a role in here as well. Okay. Western uses. All right. So that was Chinese uses, Western uses. Uh, again, Bensky and his team have a great commentary in their book. Uh, and so let's talk about that. They say Gusui Bu tonifies the kidneys and liver and is primarily used for repairing shattered bones, an effect that is assisted by its ability to invigorate the blood. We haven't really talked a lot about blood invigoration. That wasn't part of the actions, but I think as we're going to see through this commentary, it's actually a really important action of this herb. However, it also directs floating yang downward and is thus very effective for toothache, migrating teeth, and tinnitus, which is the ringing in the ear. In rectification of the meaning of Materia Medica, the Benzao Zhang Yi, written in 1914, so relatively modern, Zhangshan Lei pursues an interesting and cogent line of thought as he quotes various authorities and makes his own comments about this herb. It is in the same category as Taxili Herba or Sangji Xiang. Its nature is warm and unblocking, thus it enters the blood and harmonizes the blood, unblocking and adjusting the vessels and collaterals. The Materia Medica of the Kaibo era, or Kaibo Bensao, 973, 973, so over a thousand years old, says that it is bitter and warm and primarily breaks up blood stasis to stop bleeding, tonifies what has been broken, and also because the root is used, it warmly harmonizes and reaches downward into the liver and kidneys. For this reason, Xin Chuan stated that it governs toxic qi within the bones, pain due to wind or blood stasis, heat in the upper body with cold in the lower, all of this is the result of warmth nourishing the lower primal chi so that the herb can guide ascending floating heat downward to be stored in the residence of the lower burner. Li Shurzhen said that if it is powdered and baked in a pig's kidney, it can treat tinnitus and chronic diarrhea due to kidney deficiency as well as toothache. All of this is the same concept, but it cannot be indiscriminately used for toothache due to excess fire in the stomach, with an exclamation point. The ancients all said that this herb enters the kidneys to treat the bones, and it treats bones that are injured and shattered, so it has this name. But we must acknowledge the limits of this concept. As long as it is not yin deficiency with heat leading to bone pain or bone atrophy, it can, as stated, always be used as a general primary treatment. We just need to be careful of that yin deficiency, which we're going to talk about later. 
records of thoughtful differentiation of material Medica, the Ben South Sibian Lu, written in 1904, provides the following explanation for the statement in material Medica of the Kaibo era that Guswi Bu breaks up blood stasis and stops bleeding as follows. The blood that it breaks up is the stagnant blood in the fractured bones, and the bleeding that it stops is the loss of good blood from the fracture. It is not saying that it can break up blood or stop bleeding in other areas. Interesting. So that's the commentary on Gusui Bu. And, uh, interesting. Again, it really emphasizes uh, that blood invigoration aspect of this, which is not really under the action. So it's good to look at these commentaries. This herb, again, according to Bensky, is compared with one other herb, which is Sabodi um, uh, or rhizoma or goji. Both herbs tonify the liver and kidneys and strengthen the sinews and bones, and so are, so are important herbs for treating soreness and pain in the lower back and knees, and weakness of the sinews and bones due to liver and kidney insufficiency. However, um, Sabodii rhizoma goji is sweet, warm, and with a stronger ability to tonify the bones and spine, and it also expels wind dampness. So wind dampness is an interesting concept that's often associated or involved with types of arthritis. By contrast, guswibu is bitter and warm with a stronger ability to invigorate the blood and stop pain. It also can direct downward and thus treat tinnitus and toothache due to floating yang. That's comparison. There are um, There is a combination that Bensky discusses. It's one combination with two other herbs. So it's a combination of three herbs, uh, including this herb. So those two other herbs are gypsum fibrosum or shergao and simisifuge rhizoma or shangma with this and, and, and this herb. So that's the third. These three medicinals combine to form an effective mouth rinse for gingivitis with looseness and migration of the teeth. Equal amounts of the herbs are decocted and used as a mouthwash twice a day. Guswui Bu strengthens the teeth and the bone structure around them while directing the floating yang chi downward. This is balanced by Simisifuga rhizoma shengma, which expels wind heat and encourages the nourishing stomach chi to ascend and strengthen the teeth. Simisifuga rhizoma shengma also has the effect of resolving toxicity, which is enhanced by gypsum fibrosum shergao. Most importantly, gypsum fibrosum shergao assists in the expulsion of wind heat while strongly cooling stomach fire, a major pathogenic factor in this disorder. This, the combination is most useful for narrowing and tightening gingival pockets so the teeth become firmer and the bite stronger. It's an interesting combination. And I like this combination because we have Drinaria, which is quite warm. That's combined with Shengma, and, uh, which is cool, and Shergao, which is cold. It's a, it's a very cold herb. So it's an interesting combination to balance. That sort of balances out the heat and the cold aspects while doing a lot of other things at the same time. Remember, we often will combine herbs that have opposite functions. And the idea is that that allows the body to regulate what it needs to do. If it needs to be a little warmer, it, you know, it, it can go a little warmer, it needs to be a little cooler, it can go a little bit cooler. So often we use opposites, uh, and, and, and that is really important in Chinese herbology. So it's a great combination, actually.
Chen Chen also had a different combination, and they talk about uh, uh, Goose Wooly Boo and Shu Duan or Radix Dipsasi, Dipsaki, I've heard, or Dipsasi. Both tonify the liver and kidney to strengthen tendons and bones and invigorate blood circulation to treat traumatic injuries. They are an excellent pair to treat patients with bone fractures. They also prevent and treat osteoporosis by increasing bone mass density. We're going to see how that works, actually, when we talk about the science around this. Gusui Boo more strongly tonifies the kidney to treat tinnitus, toothache, chronic diarrhea, and loss of hearing. Shu Duan also treats restless fetus and stops bleeding. And uh, the Dharmananda article discusses these two herbs at greater depth. So they also, he also really liked this herb uh, combination as well. All right, so let's talk about the contents. So according to Bensky, the constituents of Gusui Boo include a lot of triterpenes, tri, tri none of which as I'm reading, you know, as I, I have a whole list of them here, I'm not going to read them all. Uh, especially since I probably won't. It does have beta-cytosterol, which we've talked about uh, many times at Spurbs Herbs, uh, very important herbal uh, uh, triterpene that has herb, you know, has medicinal effects. I don't think it's a major one here. None of these really showed up a lot in the articles that I read about Gusui Boo, so I'm not going to get into any of them particularly, but there's also flavonoids. And Naringin, or Naringin, N-A-R-I-N-G-I-N, does come up a lot in the article. So we're going to talk about Naringin in just a little bit. And other constituents include glucose and L-Ramnose. So those are different types of sugars. So there you go. Uh, Shea and their team state the bone protective effect seemed to be associated with interrupting the trafficking of pro-cathepsin, and osteoclasts. So osteoclasts are cells that break down bone. So if you can interrupt these osteoclasts, then there will be less breaking down of bones. More recently, the total flavonoids from Dinaria rhizoma were reported to suppress the expression of uh, cathepsin K. Uh, they also stated naringin, which is what I was uh, mentioning earlier, which is also rich in citrus fruits, appeared to be the major osteoactive ingredient of Trinaria fortunae. So all the bone stuff is sort of given to this, this flavonoid, Naringin. And Badal and Delgada, which if not familiar, is another textbook I bring in a lot. It's called, um, the textbook is called Pharmacognosy, Fundamentals, Applications, and Strategy. So it really talks about like constituents of herbs and what their medicinal benefits may be. And they also discuss the importance of Naringin, um, not in a whole bunch of depth, but they also mention it. So this Naringin is an important constituent and of, of Gusui Boo. So let's talk about the science behind this. Chen Chen say this herb can increase bone absorption of calcium for treating bone fractures. It was demonstrated to have beneficial effects in 160 mice with osteoarthritis. It may be helpful for high blood cholesterol levels. And topical application of an herbal tincture was effective in treatment of warts. So there's another skin disease. We haven't talked about warts. There were several animal studies that demonstrated altered bone cell activity when an extract of Gusui Boo was applied. So interesting. So we see a lot of studies going on this, but again, not necessarily a lot in humans at this point. There's a lot more science that needs to happen around this. 
so drug-herb interactions. Uh, Chen Chen mentioned that Gusui Bu may prevent autotoxicity, which is um, damage to the ears of the antibiotics kenamycin in a mouse study and streptomycin in human studies, two human studies, one with 32 subjects and one with 200 subjects. So that's interesting. Streptomycin, one of the major, uh, one of the major uh, side effects of using streptomycin is ear damage, ear, uh, is, uh, ear nerve damage. And so the fact that this might prevent that is, is actually kind of significant. And it does fall under the realm of drug-herb interaction, but it's a positive interaction, not a negative interaction. Uh, the American Herbal Product Association's Botanical Safety Handbook by Gardner and McGuffin puts this herb in interaction class A, herbs for which no clinically relevant interactions are expected. And I did an extensive search on this. I searched for cytochrome Q450 interactions. I, I searched for P-glycoprotein interactions. Did not find anything in the scientific literature. So this seems like, for drug-herb interactions, a pretty darn safe herb, not, not something we have to concern ourselves with uh, worrying about in the interactions. Having said that, there are concerns about this herb. There should be concerns about every herb because every herb has, has yin and yang, as we'd say in Chinese medicine. Sabensky and his team say under cautions and contraindications, use with caution in those with yin deficiency or in the absence of blood stasis. So remember, this is very warming. You don't want to add warmth into, yin deficient, um, uh, into a yin deficient condition. And remember, we emphasize that blood invigoration. So if there's nothing, if the blood isn't, um, static, then don't use this herb either. They, they continue with traditional contraindications. Contraindicated in all cases of blood deficiency wind dryness, blood deficiency fire, or blood deficiency cramping and painful obstruction. And these were from the Treasury of Words on the Materia Medica or the Bensao Huayan, written in the Ming Dynasty, from, uh, which lasted from 1368 to 1644. So that, that's, those are old, but it makes sense. Blood deficiency will go into yin deficiency. Doesn't like the heat either, so that's a, that's a good thing. You put heat into blood deficiency, you hasten the yin deficiency happening, so it's good. It should not be used together with wind-expelling drying herbs, and this is from the commentary on the Divine Husbandsman's Classic of Materia Medica, or the Shenan Ben Sao Jing Shu, uh, which was written in 1665, uh, 1625. Traditional, uh, continuing with traditional, traditional contraindications. Uh, this is explained in Harm and Benefit in the Materia Medica, the Ben Sao Hai Li, written in 1893. Should not be used together with wind-expelling herbs because while the bitterness of Gusui Bu fortifies the kidneys, the kidney organ is averse to dryness, and the additional warmth and dryness of wind herbs will be excessive, resulting in injury to the blood's fluid. So there you go. So they have another section called toxicity, and there they continue to say no toxic effects have been reported within, within the normal dosage range. High doses may lead to toxic side effects, however, as in the following case after ingestion of 100 grams of this herb in a decoction. Remember we said the normal is about 9 to 21 grams, so that's five times the normal, the highest level. Uh, so after ingestion of 100 grams of this herb in a decoction, dry mouth, loquaciousness, fear, palpitations, a sense of oppression in the chest, muddled consciousness, and a manic depressive type psychosis. So psychosis means break from reality. That's pretty major. 
So that's what Bensky and his team said about concerns. Then we also have Chen Chen concerns. Uh, they also include cautions and indications and say use of Gusui Vu is contraindicated in yin deficient patients with heat and those that have no blood stagnation. So exactly the same basically as I think what Bensky and his team said. But they also, and they also warn about overdosage. Acute adverse reaction has been reported following an overdose of, overdose of Gusui Vu. 250 grams in two days. So the other one said 100 grams. This is 125 grams a day. Reactions included dry mouth, excessive speech, palpitations, fear, and chest depression. I, I feel like they're both referring to the same, same thing there. And Brent Wiseman also included a similar warning. Use with care in yin acuity with internal heat or in the absence of stacked blood. So we're, we're really emphasizing not yin deficiency, no blood stasis. The American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook puts this herb in its safety, safest category, si safety class one, which says herbs that can be safely consumed when used appropriately. And I think that's you know, all the things we were discussing there are appropriate uses. And that is it for today's herb. Thank you very much. We started our podcast today with a discussion of epigenetics and its potential for explaining the mechanism of action for acupuncture and herbal interventions. And then we discussed Gusui Bu, an interesting herb in Chinese medicine used to treat bones and sinews, as well as yang vacuity in Chinese medicine. Generally a quite safe herb, though caution should be used in certain conditions, and further research into its efficacy is definitely warranted. Overall, another interesting look at a Chinese herb and another interesting in this episode. Interesting is the word of the day, apparently. So moving on, <laughs> next episode, in two weeks, uh, we will be looking at another herb of the world, in this case, another Australian herb. Uh, 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 I, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Aramophila, Aramophila longifolia, commonly known as Berrigan. I have no clue what this herb is used for, but I'm super excited to find out and add some more knowledge. And as usual, we will, be, we will be exploring something a little different or maybe a lot different like today. Please join us for the next episode where we'll find out about an interesting Australian herb. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast, please do us a favor. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for even considering that. And you can get this course as continuing education and get more info on my upcoming integrative nutrition series at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, dot org. And you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or on our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. And as usual, I have my bibliography. It's quite extensive today. Spurs The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins, Rogers, Campbell.